Hello everyone and welcome to Hausfeld's Collective Cost. I'm here with Anthony Mayton, uh, Nicola Boyle and Luke Stretfield to discuss one thing and one thing only and that is the certification judgments in the trains collective actions which Anthony and Luke you have um, spoken about on Collective Cost previously um, and now you're back with CPO judgments which is obviously um, obviously fantastic. So Luke, um, First of all, can you can you just remind us what these claims are about? Yes, of course. Um, so we act on these claims for our client, Justin Gutman, um, who is a seasoned campaigner on rail issues, along with our co-counsel, Charles Linden. And the claims are about the rail uh, franchises overcharging customers on the lines in the southeast and southwest of London and specifically in circumstances where if you have a travel card, you're entitled to travel all over the range of your travel card um, by virtue of the travel card. But what the train companies were doing was not making available what are called boundary fares, which tell you that if you buy a ticket out of London, say from Charing Cross, you're entitled to use your travel card until the edge of that zone. They were charging people for the full journey from Charing Cross out to say Seven Oaks. And they'd be making millions of pounds out of this. And the case was to hold the um, train companies to account for this practice and to try and improve the situation going forward. Fantastic. OK, and so we've got we've got two CPO judgments. So the CPO has been granted and, and Justin um, has been authorised to act as the class representative. Now, I have had a quick look at the judgment myself and there's plenty in there, um, plenty that we could be discussing but the, the first thing um, that jumped out really is the dismissal of the defendant's um, strikeout application and the comments that the tribunal made um, in relation to uh, the application of chapter 2 and 102 to the defendant's conduct. Yeah now this is really interesting and it's going to get technical here because this is a competition case um, which is brought against the train operating companies for abuse of their dominant position on the lines they operate. And because they're dominant, there isn't really competition on those lines. They have a special responsibility to treat customers fairly. And what the train operating companies argued was that this practice couldn't count as an abuse of dominance. It wasn't one of the previously recognised categories. And as a result, the claim was bound to fail. And what the tribunal said was, no, you can't take that kind of technical approach. Competition law looks at the substance, not the form. And when you have a scenario where people are effectively paying twice for part of their journey, that's something that no one would choose to do. And that's obviously an abuse of your dominance if you're allowing that kind of practice to continue. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's really encouraging judgment in that regard, I think, Luke, because effectively what the tribunal is saying is, look, we can, we can look at where competition law sits today, we can look at the principles on it, and you know we can we can see that claims that may expand those boundaries are claims that we should allow to to go ahead and be properly and, and fully argued um which i think in terms of the you know, the breadth of the the regime here is is terrific news well that seemed like a really sensible approach and one that's really consumer friendly and again not getting bound up in technical or kind of precedent-based arguments but really looking at what is the harm and what can this regime do to fix that harm? Yeah, and it potentially takes competition law into well, it takes competition law into those areas of unfair trading 
conditions and unf unfair purchase prices and, and the like. And as I say, I think it opens up scope to quite a lot of further claims as a result of this. Which is, which is, yeah, I mean, uh, fantastic that the, that the tribunal was interpreted, um, interpreted like that. But Nicola, I think, so um, I think previously we talked about the tribunal's dismissal of a strikeout application in the BT claims and the tribunal has again um, dismissed the, the strikeout here. Is there anything that we can, any parallels that we can, we can draw or anything to draw from this approach? I mean, as you say, Lucy, it's the, it's the second attempt and hopefully a, an indication of where they're going to come out. And I think, as we said, we saw post Merricks, people, defendants trying to bring strikeout claims alongside the CPO application. And I think the message from the tribunal is that this isn't creating an extra hurdle. Um, they seem comfortable in, in creating the CPO that they're not going to create a, a sort of higher hurdle than, um, that, than had been set out. And I think it's, it's hopefully encouraging that it's going to allow claims to proceed efficiently um, and not get bogged down at that, that sort of early stage. Yeah, no, you go Luke. Well, I was just going to say that we were really encouraged by the tribunal's decision on that front. The fact they really did respect the kind of strikeout standard mm -hmm. because the case has been, the case was filed in February uh, 2019 and we were put in a siding while the Merricks case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. But what the Merricks case said is that this certification stage really should be just a strikeout standard, you know, just cases that are really hopeless should get kicked out, but otherwise they should proceed. And it seems like the tribunal is implementing that now and we're really picking up speed as a regime. Yeah, and I hope this is going to lead to some changes in defendant behaviour. Uh, yeah. in, in that A, we won't just see people going for a strikeout in any event. And B, and this is a particular bugbear of mine, they won't keep playing this opt-out, opt-in card, particularly on consumer claims, because I think the tribunal has come out quite strongly in a combination of BT and here and said, look, these are mass consumer claims. Of course, they're, you know, they're opt-out, not opt-in claims. Um, it is slightly irritating, and this is another bugbear of mine, that they still say that notwithstanding an opt-in is not on the table, that the rules allow them to consider opt out and opt in and therefore consider the merits, which I, I still think doesn't sit easily with Merricks. And the way the tribunal here tried to get out of that was to say, well, that means we look at the merits at a very high level and it's not a full merits assessment. But I still think that doesn't sit, it doesn't sit easily, this, and it's going to have to be sorted out at an appellate level in due course. Yeah, as you say, Anthony, it seems the wrong criteria, doesn't it, to be using between the opt out and the opt in. Yeah, yeah. But hopefully, we'll, as I say, we'll hopefully we'll see defendants accept that if you've got a consumer claim, it's obviously an opt, it's, it's an opt out and they won't keep banging on about it being an opt in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting, Anthony, but these sort of arguments seem to be closing down for defendants. Um, they've tried the strikeout, they've tried the opt out, opt in. But as you say, hopefully it will be bringing an end to some of these arguments as now we have a number of judgments on um, and there's I mean I, oh, I should also let you know at this point that Luke is winning the award for the best train related <laughs> time so far on this podcast so Anthony Nicola you'll see if you can go on better in, um, in the time we've been remaining um, in terms of what you said Nicola about removing the defendant's arguments as we as we go along I mean I think I'm right in saying that that may or that 
that comment may also apply to the approach that the tribunal took to, to common issues. Um, I don't know, Luke, if you've got any reflections on, on how the tribunal dealt with that. Well, this is an area of real interest, legal interest in the judgment. And I have to say, I really enjoyed reading it. The synthesis that was performed by the tribunal of Canadian precedents, the treatment of the US precedents, and then coming out with a really clear view about how the UK regime is supposed to work, drawing on those where appropriate, distinguishing them where appropriate, I thought was fantastic. And it dealt with one of the most tricky issues in our case, um, which is causation. And uh, so the, the common issues test, there are a number of interesting points here. Um, I'm just going to focus on the causation one because it's it, it's really key. Here. And what effectively the defendants were saying was, of all the people who were buying these boundary fares, there was a completely heterogeneous mix of reasons why they might not have bought one. You might have been late for your train. You might not have had your travel card with you. You might not have wanted one. You might have just not cared because you're a, you know, a wealthy London uh, train traveller. Um, and given that, given that if you were trying the case of any individual person, the train company would be entitled to look at that causation point and to say, did our breach, the fact we didn't make these boundary fares available, really cause your loss? Because that's a fundamental right, they said, you can't possibly hear these cases across all the millions of people who are affected because everyone would have had an individual story about why they did or didn't buy a boundary fare. And so you can't have causation as a common issue. And it's so important that these claims shouldn't be certified. And the tribunal looked at that and looked at the regime and said, you know, in the light of merits and the rationale in merits, where Supreme Court was saying, what you have, the purpose of this regime is to bring justice to a large number of people. And when it comes to the calculation of damages, you have to take a sort of broad approach. Uh, that drawing on that line of reasoning, the tribunal said that when you're um, dealing with that kind of um, credible methodology for calculating loss, that's not just good enough for assessing the amount of loss on a class-wide basis, that's good enough for assessing the proving of loss on a class-wide basis. So you can bring the causation factor into that a credible methodology for, 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 for estimating loss across a large number of people, which is a really practical way to look at it. And they, they rooted it in the specifics of the regime. But what it effectively means is that causation can be treated as a common issue. I mean, it's really interesting. And, I mean, and it's a really key issue, isn't it, Luke? Because if they'd succeeded on that, then it drives a horse and carriage, and that's not a train analogy, obviously, a horse and carriage through through, through the regime, because it, it's only some consumer actions where you're gonna get effectively common behavior on, on causation. There's a huge amount of consumer claims where, yes, there is going to be some difference in how in how consumers react to the circumstances that they're, they're put into. So it's a, that sensible, commonsensical judgment, I think is is hugely important for the regime. Exactly. And the defendant's approach was this very technical, you know, if you literally look at every single case, you can, of course, spot differences. So that means we, we all have to go home. We can't we can't do this. And the tribunal said, look, with common issues, you have to take a broader approach. It's about whether there's a common question. It doesn't have to be exactly the same answer for everyone. Um, so and that is it will be a principle if it is upheld that will apply across the board for all these kinds of cases, because of course, with a large number of people in, in any given kind of collective proceedings, there are bound to be these differences in individual situations. And if you had a scenario where everyone had to have exactly the same situation, exactly the same causal story, the regime just wouldn't work. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, you would really be limited to a handful of actions that could actually be brought on on that basis, I think. So, but yeah. let's let's hope, Luke, we're not stuck in the sidings again, because I suspect there is a good chance that the defendants will try and appeal this or to get leave to, to appeal it. So we, we will see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, OK. And I yeah, I can certainly I can certainly see the the importance of, of that point to to a number of, of claims that are on foot before the before the tribunal. There was there was one further point um, that had jumped out to me, and this is around the way in which the tribunal has applied um, what the Supreme Court referred to, I think, as these multifactorial um, or this balancing exercise of the factors under 79.2. Um, Luke, do you want to do you want to tell us a bit about how the tribunal actually performed that analysis? Yes. So this is the other key part of the judgment. There was the first section, the sort of real pillars of it, uh, on common issues, which you have to show to be able to be certified. And then the second bit was on uh, suitability. So the fact that the claim is suitable to be brought in a collective proceedings. And following the judgment in Merrick's, the way in which the tribunal now goes about that test is to take what are six factors um, in uh, Rule 79 that go to suitability and weigh all those factors. And no one of them is determinative. So you have to look at all of them. And this test was actually very strikingly applied in this case because one of the factors is the cost benefit analysis. And the tribunal were looking at a number of factors that were in play for the cost benefit analysis, the budget that was going to be required for the case, the returns that were going to be enjoyed by the funders and the lawyers if it was successful, the likely uptake on the part of individual claimants, how much each claimant was going to get, how likely they were to claim it. And looking at all these factors, they said that on balance, although there were strong factors in favour of the proceeding and the cost benefit analysis, they felt it weighed slightly against in this case, on that one factor. However, on every other factor that they could see, whether the claims would be brought in any other way um, and, and all the other factors in, uh, under Rule 79, the, the case was clearly suitable for a collective proceedings. And so as an example of the tribunal taking the merits judgment and applying it in practice, and that hopefully will be a, a guide for you know, future cases about how that works. Yeah, I mean, again, really helpful, I think. I mean, I do have, I do take some issue with where they were on cost benefit because, the, you know, it's very easy for a, for a room full of London lawyers to say that £30 isn't worth anyone claiming and the cost benefit analysis doesn't work in its favour. But you know, actually 30 quid for a lot of people or whatever it ends up being, you know, is not an in insignificant sum. You know, it's it's a meal out or whatever it, it may be. So, um, but nonetheless, as you rightly say, they, they then put that into the, into the overall equation and clearly came out in the right places. Yes, um, suitability, it's suitable for this to proceed. And, and in, sorry, Nicola, go on. I think in doing that, Anthony, they also, again, recognise that commercial funding is the reality of bringing these claims. So when you're looking at the costs, um, it's a question that this is the only way at the moment of bringing them. And so the alternative is the claim not being brought at all, which would not be in inter the interest of consumers anyway. So I think it was interesting that the tribunal were weighing, weighing that up as, as sort of the alternative if you didn't let it proceed. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That, and that's exactly or at least related, Nicholas, what I was thinking, which is the sort of the point that if the actions aren't brought, then then the profits of the wrongdoing remain with the 
defendants, which is a, a pretty unhappy um, position. Okay, so um, I, I guess my final question um, to Anthony and Luke is what's next? Do we have a timetable going forward? Well, we do. Um, we have a hearing uh, that will be scheduled to deal with the consequential points, uh, and that will be, be shortly. Then, of course, we wait to hear <clears throat> in the BT case, um, the defendant BT has sought um, to, to appeal, and, and that was rejected by the tribunal. You can imagine that in this case, the defendants will consider carefully whether they would want to appeal. So we'll have to, we'll have to wait to see that. I mean, obviously, what we would hope is that the judgment, as it is, is a very strong judgment, will hold up and then we'll be able to get a timetable through to a hearing. Um, but we'll just have to wait to see on that decision on the appeal uh, um, uh, before we know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to claim timetable as a um, train-related plan, by the way. And I think by conclusion, we can say that these claims are on track um, and it's full steam ahead. We very very good. And what's next, Lucy, on, on, on the in the sort of collective buffet car coming up? We've got Forex, which is an anticipated a judgment probably sometime in November. Um, we've got the the BT consequentials, which we'll want to talk about when we've fully digested that. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And we've got a um, the jurisdiction hearing in the Qualcomm. Um, collective action in early November. So um, there's there's quite a bit coming up and there will be further collective costs as you'd expect. Fantastic. Well, we'll, we'll look forward to that later in the autumn. Brilliant. Thank you very much all. Thank you. Bye bye.